but before we, before we jump into this uh, this morning, um, I, I'm just going to, if it's okay, I'm just going to stop and pray. A lot of times we'll have our, one of our elders or someone else uh, do sort of an intercessory community prayer. Um, being spring break, people coming and going, we, uh, I'll just do that this morning. But I just want to mention a couple of things. We just have a couple of families uh, that are just continue to struggle with medical issues and things of that sort. And so uh, I'm not going to name them right now. And we'll, that, some of those will be on the Vintage Voice prayer request or whatever. Um, but I'm just going to lift them up right now because I know some are struggling and dealing with, uh, in some cases, many family members at the same time. So uh, let's just lift them up real quick. Heavenly Father, uh, you're, you're, you give us tender mercy. And very often, though, uh, you bring us through difficult circumstances, bitter providence, um, difficult uh, health issues, life issues, and so many things. And Lord, as a little small community, as a church, uh, we've seen so many issues and so many uh, areas that are just been struggle and uh, a lot of pain and heartache and fear and, un- and uh, uncertainty. And so Lord, I just want to lift up to you this morning those that are facing those things, that are, that are not sure what's going to happen, what's facing them. And Lord, I pray you would just give them your tender mercy, give them your peace, uh, and give them uh, a heart that will cling to you. Um, and so, Lord, we, and we, we also just lift them up and say, Lord, you can heal these remedies. Uh, and so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, uh, put your hand upon them and heal them. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we are in the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, as I've said, when I started this series now uh, 10 weeks ago, uh, I, I really thought to myself, what have I done? Why in the world would I have ever chosen such a book? And this is one that many smart pastors out there avoid if they can, but we would like to uh, give you guys the whole counsel of of God's word. But Ecclesiastes hasn't been an easy book to preach. I mean, this guy seems really depressed. It's like you want to give him a hug half the time. Uh, You know, life is meaningless. We're just going to die. Your life pursuits are are pointless. There's oppression and injustice. I mean, it's a downer book. Um, But what we believe here at Vintage Grace is that all of God's word, all 66 books of the Bible, are God's inspired word. And that it's infallible, and that what it says is true is always true. That it's inerrant, it can't be proven wrong. And it is breathed out by God. And we, when we come to his word, whether we feel it or not, we will be transformed. And so, let's turn to God's word. I'm going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, it will also be on the screen behind me. This is the last chapter of the book. Yes, I'm glad. I had to say that. Remember also your creator and the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain... In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. 
when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of songs, song are brought low. They are afraid also of what high and terrors are in the way, and the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. The mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it were, was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many Proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote, wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed, or collected sayings. They are given by the one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Making many books, there is no end, and, so, and much study to weariness of the flesh. End of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. Hear the word of God. Let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning again that you would speak to us through your word, that you would use this broken vessel, that we might clearly see what you would have us to hear and to obey this morning. And Lord, may we see also the beauty of your son Jesus ever more clearly. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so Solomon, as we've said, he's not writing philosophy here, although some have said it sounds like it. If you've been in a freshman philosophy class, you might have heard that all is meaningless. There is no God, so we somehow have to create our own. He's not doing that. He's not trying to be depressing. He's, what he's doing is, he is giving us a series of harsh words. Wake up calls. You know, it's shaking us. Or as we said, another, uh, and this is an old southern term I used to hear is, a come to Jesus meeting. And it's a series of wake up calls. And we said a wake up call is a person or thing that causes people to become fully alert to an unsatisfactory situation and take action to remedy it. So very often a wake-up call is an event that causes us to be aware of what's wrong, and we start, because of that wake-up call, to make a change and make something different. I'm going to put this down. Thank you. So that's what he's been doing. We've gone through these wake-up calls. This wake-up call. Life is vanity. It is a breath. It is short. It is, a, it is, it is uh, very, very brief. Uh, he's told us that your life pursuits outside of Christ are vain. And he has told us that you're going to die, so live accordingly. He's, he's talked about oppression and injustice and how every one of us at some level are a part of that. And we need to be aware of it. Um, we've, in so many things, he's kind of given this constant list of uh, wake-up calls. And in this last chapter, Solomon gives us the bottom line. It's, it all boils down. What's the essence, the summary? I can remember being in 
especially when I was in college, we loved it when our, when our uh, professor, teacher, would give us a clue as to what would be on the test. That would greatly narrow down what you need to know. I love summaries, you know. Uh, you know so the Ten Commandments are a summary of God's great law and, and what he would have for us. And I love it because then Jesus narrows it down to two. That's awesome, right? Love God, love others. Like, give us the summary. I love cliff notes. I don't like a lot of extra words. So that's what, so he's, at the end of this book, he's boiling it down to what we need to know. And it's great because right here in the middle of this passage, he kind of describes what he's been doing throughout this book. So if you're wondering, where did you get this idea, Russell, of wake-up call and harsh words? Well, he kind of says, listen, um, he says the preacher, that's himself, Sought to find words of delight. So he set out in this experiment, and he wanted to sh- you know, show that life has great meaning. It's a great experiment. And he went out, and he lived, and he did all that you could do with money and, and pleasure and, and sought out wisdom and tried to live the best life possible. And he came at the end of it, and instead of being able to give us words of delight, he, he had to give us, he goes on, and I'm in verse 10, he uprightly and uprightly wrote words of truth. Very often, words of truth hurt, and they sting. And he goes on to say, okay, the words of the wise are like goads, like prods you would use to get cattle moving, um, and like nails firmly fixed or the collected sayings, but they are given by the one shepherd. And he says, and beware of anything else, because there's books after, there's so many books in the world, Okay? Making of many books, there is no end, and much study is weariness of the flesh. And so Solomon, now at the end of his chapter, he's boiling it down to a pretty simple concept. It's like, I have explored all these things. I've gone through this life experience on your, for your, on your behalf to tell you what life's really about. And he boils it down to one thing. Okay? And that's our wake-up call this morning. Wake-up call is fear God. We need to fear God. Now, immediately, when we hear that, we hear the word fear, and we think, that can't be a good thing. Fear is never a good thing. I don't like it. Nobody likes it. I, I just had, went through an experiment of fear the last few days. Um, my uh, son's third grade class, they did a sleepover and a day at um, Bush Garden. And it was great because I got, it was perfect because I got to see different kinds of fear in action. Because one of the things that happened at Bush Gardens, if you can imagine, there's rides. And some of them are scary rides. They strike fear into most 10-year-olds. And most 10-year-olds were like, nope. Most 10-year-olds are normal. And they're like, "Uh uh-uh. I am not getting on that. They got on like smaller rides. However, my son, however, Knox, he's got a disconnect somewhere or something. He rode every big ride there was that he could get on. There was one that he was like a centimeter or something too short. He, we got me on one. I was nervous. I'm like, oh, dude. I'm like in line. I'm like, you all right? You sure you're okay with this? He's like, yeah. I'm like, you sure? Because I'm looking up. And, and this is called uh, the Shikra. It should be renamed the Shrieker or something like that. 
It's high, really high, and it takes you out over this ledge, and it starts to go down, and then it stops for about two seconds. And so the people in these little cars that are things that you're in have to look down this, like, 200-foot drop that's straight down for a few seconds to ponder, the, you know, your life before it lets go. And then it lets go, and it's, like, sheer terror straight down, and then this huge loop. It is just unbelievable. And I thought for sure he was going to lose it. I thought he will never get on a roller coaster again. Because I was thinking, I might not. <laughs> he didn't. He was not afraid of that at all. It was really interesting. And then another, another experiment I saw of fear was uh, there was a lady. Uh, well, we, we all went into this room, and they were bringing out different animals. They brought, I mean, amazing. They brought out this, uh, this owl. It was the be- most beautiful thing. It was a horned owl or something. It was a native of, of our area here. Beautiful animal. But she, she brought out this some kind of bow and constrictor. And there was one lady in there. She saw that. I mean, there was hardly a second. She was out the back door. <laughs> I was like, whoa. She might be afraid. Uh, and then another one I saw was at the, um, the very end of our day or whatever, we were riding rides, and we, there was a scheduled thing with these. I don't know if you've ever been there. They have this, like, alligator keep with some of the biggest alligators I've ever seen. Some of them are 15 foot long. One of them, he said, was probably at least 60 years old. And this, this guy, this uh, keeper guy, is standing there in the midst of them. You know, he's got a big pole. But he's standing next to alligators that, you know, he could probably put his whole body in their mouth. I mean, they're just enormous. And he's standing there. And, and so there was all these different, you know, and he, I'm sure he had fear, a, 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 a right kind of fear. So what's, what's he talking about here? Why would he tell us down here at the very end that we would fear God? Okay? And I think there's a good fear and a bad fear. Wouldn't you agree with that? There is good fears and bad fears. Um, now, very often, the word that Solomon uses here for fear does mean dread or terror. So uh, when that lady saw that snake, and, and hit the door as fast as I, I mean, I've never seen somebody move so fast in my life. Uh, there was this fear and dread. Uh, but, very, but also biblically, though, this term fear has a much broader meaning. And it can mean awe or reverence. So we use the word awesome. Now, we use it poorly. We say, man, that taco was awesome. No, it wasn't. It was tasty. Come on, let's use words rightly. We use awesome for everything. No, when you go and you stand at the Grand Canyon, that, my friends, is awesome. Because there's a moment of, oh, no, I don't want to get too close. But then there's that moment of, whoa, that's awesome, right? Tacos are not awesome. Okay? And that's what he's getting at here. He's like, it's a, it's a sense of reverence. And awe um, and, and, and awareness of uh, maybe even, um, well, we'll get into some of what it means, okay? So, biblical, the idea of biblical fear, to fear God, um, it is a good thing. But very often we can misunderstand it, uh, misapply it, and so on. So, here he gives us some, uh, an idea 
of what healthy biblical fear is. And so biblical fear is a healthy fear informed by who we are, who God is, and it should, in that case, move us towards a healthy obedience. Okay, so let's look at those. Okay, first of all, a fear of God has a healthy view of ourselves. A fear of God has a healthy view of ourselves. John Calvin, he's quoted a lot here in this. Um, he said this, Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. Knowledge of God and of ourselves. Now this is misquoted quite a bit. And especially the people that are more of the new agey kind of people. And they're like, because you gotta, you got to find yourself. you got to find your true self somewhere deep down. I'm like, well, you need a big shovel because it's really deep down somewhere in there. Uh, but it's this idea that somehow there's a true self somewhere at this lost or whatever. That's not what John Calvin's saying. And that is not what Solomon's saying here either. And if you go look at look with me in verses 1 through 8, it says, Remember your creator. In the days of your youth, before the evil days come um, and the years draw near to which you will say I have no pleasure in them. And so he says, remember your creator. Let's just just read the whole thing. We'll we'll refer back to some of this. Um, Before the sun, verse 2, in the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. And in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. And the doors on the streets are shut. And when the sound of the grinding is low, and, the, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and so on, and daughters of the song are brought low, and they are afraid of what is high, and the tares are, uh, in the way they are, the, the almond tree blossoms. I can just see this grasshopper dragging himself along. Have you all see this one? And the grasshopper drags himself along, like limping. Anyway, um, so this language is great sometimes. Where am I at? Uh, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snatched and the golden bowl is broken and the pitcher is shattered at the fountain and the wheel is broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to where God gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And so Solomon is, is like we said, writing and likely to his young sons. And he's saying, first of all, remember your creator. In, while you were young, remember where you come from. Remember your origins. Now, and I think, you know, though he's speaking to young people, he's saying, while you're still young, do it. So, but if you're not young still, the principle applies. While you still can, remember where you come from. He wants us to realize that we come from God. He created us. And that, but also, you can't help, if you know your Bible, this word creator. This is the word berit, in which we see in the, in the Genesis chapter 1 that God created the heavens and the earth, right? But then right after that, we see man, and wom- the man and the woman rebel against God. And they eat the fruit, right? And they, they separate themselves from it. And he wants us to realize... That first of all, you are created and you belong to God and yet you have rebelled against him. And so he wants us to remember our origins. Um, Now, that's the thing. Where we come from is important. It defines who we are. 
what, what we come out of, where we feel like we are origin. So I, I heard one person say this, you know, uh, if you teach all teenagers that they are just evolved, advanced apes, guess what? They might start to act like it. And that happens, I think, sometimes. And so it's important to know where we come from. Um, then secondly, he wants us to know also where we're going. What is our end? And he's talked about this. This was one of the wake-up calls. You are going to die. By the way, just in case you didn't know that. And he brings it back up here again. Okay, remember, and so we saw this. And what he's doing here in this whole passage, most, a lot, most of this passage here, he's just giving a litany of different ways of saying the same thing. You're going to get old, and you're going to die. And so, I don't know if you saw some of these uh, phrases. Um, you know, this you know, grasshopper dragging himself along, <laughs> some of these kind of phrases. Uh, but then he said, the silver cord is snapped, the golden bowl is broken, the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, the wheel is broken at the cistern, dust returns to earth as it was, the spirit returns to God who gave it. What he's saying is, he's just saying different ways, of, using different words, different ways of saying, you're going to die. We do the same thing. We have a whole list of phrases we use, don't we? You probably think of some. How about kick the bucket? Um, where am I? Uh, bite the dust, keel over, cash in his chips, worm food, pushing up Davies, his numbers up. I could go on, right? We use these phrases, and a lot of them kind of make us feel better about it. So he's making it clear that we understand what he's trying to say here is you're going to die. In a very poetic and maybe even funny way of saying it. Uh, he's letting us know that we have an end. Our life is coming to the end uh, and reminds us we are going to die. And then, verse 8, he also wants us to realize the middle. This has been the, 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 the whole book here is like, where are you from? Where are you going? And what's the middle? What is, the, what is life really about? Uh, he talks about life under the sun. Life in the, as it is, as we experience it here, what is it really about? And he says it in verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanities. It's like the major theme in this book. He, he says this word vanity 38 times in the 12, 12 chapters. And this word we said what means vapor. It's the word breath. And, and he, he paints this picture that life is just a little breath or a mist. And it's, it's there. You can see it. But it goes away very quickly. And even if you try to grab it. You know, if you ever go out on a cold morning. Maybe like if you got out early yesterday morning. I know some people did. And you breathed out. You had a nice little smoke breath come out. And the thing about that is, it's, it's by nature short-lived. And if you try to grasp onto it and hang onto it, the quicker it goes. And he's saying that is life. And so he wants to know who we are in that. We are created. We are fallen and broken. We're going to die. And in between, it's short. So we need to have a healthy view of ourselves. And that should begin to give us a greater fear of the one that we belong to. Secondly, healthy fear of God, excuse me, a fear of God is a healthy view of God. Right? You've got to have a healthy view of God to have a healthy fear of God. So we should fear God because God, let's put it this way, awful, full of awe. He is an awful being. Okay, not like we say awful now is a bad thing. 
But he is full of awe. And he is, should be feared. God, in some, actually not in some ways, in most ways, God should be scary to us. He should strike terror and dread into our hearts. And that's what we see throughout the Bible when people come close and have a, a visual um, a, a experience with God. It is not what we a lot of times think we have an experience with God. Like we go to a church and we see people, they're hand clapping and they're dancing and they're crying, this, that, and the other. And yes, that can be an experience we have with God. But when you look at, and throughout the Bible, when people come face to face with God, it is not a happy experience. Like Isaiah chapter 6, face with God, and he sees God on his throne, and the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy. He doesn't go, praise Jesus. You know, he goes, woe is me, for I am undone. Destroy me. Get me out of here. And even in the New Testament, when, when Jesus and his disciples were in the boat, get, see a Galilee, and the storm comes, and it's raging around them, and Jesus is asleep in the boat. Y'all remember this situation? And the, the, the disciples are freaking out, and they're like, Jesus is sleeping. What is he doing? And so they wake him up, and Jesus gets up, says a word, and the storm calms. Guess what their response was? Fear. They were like, oh. They stepped away a little bit from this Jesus guy because they were like, whoa. This ain't just buddy Jesus, you know. Hey, buddy. You know, kind of Jesus. This, is, this isn't bobblehead Jesus. This is Jesus who could vaporize you, like with, you know, Superman eyes or something. He could calm the storm. They were like, who is this? And it says they were afraid. And they should be because they weren't messing with just any old dude. They were messing, they were in the presence of God become man. And so, um, I've heard Christian say a lot, you know, that God of the Old Testament, he's mean and scary and demanding. However, in, you know, in the New Testament, God is just loving and gracious. And let me tell you, that's just poor theology. That's just a poor view of the Bible that divides the Old Testament and New Testament. Okay? And the same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And both are gods that should be feared. I hear another thing. Actually, I heard a friend say this. He was saying, he was talking about a really popular church here in, in uh, Jacksonville, I won't mention. And he wasn't trying to be critical. He was like, you know, it, I really get concerned. He said when he sees people post about a church, they're like, oh, I love that church because I never feel judged. And I, and I get that, because nobody wants to be judged by another person. So, you know, if that's what they mean, cool, right? If you're, they're being judged by other people. But we should, when we, put, when we get under God's word, we should have a sense that we are being judged. God will judge, and he does judge says it here in Ecclesiastes verse 14, 12, 14. Very last word, verse. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We're like, okay, see, that's Old Testament, right? 
Well, now let's fast forward. Let's hear it from Jesus. Matthew 28, or excuse me, 10, 28. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him, God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So he's reminding them to get your fear straight. Because you're going to either fear God or you are going to fear people here. One pastor put it this way. The default if we do not fear the Lord is that we will fear something else instead. That's what Proverbs 29, 25 means saying. Fearing people is a dangerous trap, but trusting in the Lord means safety. To fear people is to hold a person or group of people, parents, friends, spouse, co-worker, whatever, above anyone and everything else. To fear people is to do what other people want you to do, demand uh, that you do, or pressure you even when it's not what God wants you to do. So if you want to know if you're fearing the Lord in a healthy way, is this, which, do you fear others? Are you worried about what they think about you? Are you pressured into things? Are you, are you influenced in that way? One guy wrote a book, you know, when people are big and God is small. It's the same principle here. But here's the thing. We need a healthy view of God, that God should be feared. And because of that, well, that third point here is that we should have the fear of God has a healthy obedience. The fear of God has a healthy obedience. Obedience, And we see that here, he says, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of the man. So the fear of God should produce obedience in our lives. Uh, so let me give you all an example of this. Okay? If you're driving down the road, let's paint a little picture. You're driving down the road and all of a sudden a police officer pulls in behind you. Guess what happens? It's amazing. It's like the best driving ever in the history of the world. All of a sudden it starts to occur. You start doing the speed limit and you're like, you know, you're checking and you're making sure you get the blinker just right. Oh, I mean, you are, you are driving perfectly because the police officer is behind you and you, are, you know if you make a mistake and you don't do things just right, there's a chance those lights are going to come on and you know what happens after that. So when we realize God created us, life is short and we are going to die and face God's judgment, we, are gonna, we should, we're smart, consider how we are living our lives. We will be motivated towards obedience. But let me tell you, kind of obedience is not healthy and it's not what really God wants. For example, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. It says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And what the people of God were doing, this is what they were doing. They feared God. They had seen God. They had seen what he could do. They had seen him on Mount Sinai. They had seen him uh, with the plagues in Egypt. They had a healthy fear of God. And so they were like, well, we better act good. Police officer's behind us. If we don't, he's going to strike us dead. They missed the point. And so he says, I desire way more than you just being afraid of me and doing what I tell you. 
And the Pharisees were the same way. Jesus encountered them over and over and over again. And he actually quotes this very verse from Hosea against them. saying, He says, you guys are just doing the outward motions because you're afraid of God. So, what kind of fear of God produces a healthy obedience? That's the good question, isn't it? We should fear God. There should be a measure of dread and terror in terms of who God is and His presence. That should be there. But there is a healthy fear of God. And Jerry Bridges in his book, which has a a, a great title, The Joy of Fearing God, tells an amazing story. And I think it really gives us a great picture of what the real fear of God should look like. And he tells a story of a, a friend of his named Butch, Butch McGregor. And Butch was an you know, all-star athlete or whatever. And when he graduated high school, wanted to do something that would really challenge him or whatever. And so he signed up for the Marine Corps. And, so, and, and very quickly realized it was a lot different than he thought it was going to be. Because the Marine Corps is tough. And you have these drill sergeants constantly in your face, yelling at you, demeaning you. And if you ever do anything the slightest wrong, I mean, he would just step out of line just ever so slightly on their field of marching or whatever. And he'd be in, the guy would be in his face yelling at him and making him do push-ups and run around and, you know, peeling potatoes, whatever they make them do or whatever. I don't know if they even ever did that. That's just one of those things you see in cartoons or something. But... You know, and so he began to fear these drill sergeants. Because if he didn't do the things he needed to do and get his bed just right, get his shoes shined and everything right, he would pay for it. And so he learned how to be a Marine. He could clean that rifle. He'd get those boots shined. He could march just right. He could do all those things. And he learned to snap to order and say, Sir, yes, sir. Well, it got worse for him when he was in boot camp because every so often, the commanding general for the, the, the recruiting or the uh, training battalion or whatever comes through for an inspection. And that, that was due during his time in boot camp. And so if you can imagine the generals coming, all of these drill sergeants are on just, they're on high, they're octane, they are just going crazy and they are making these guys scrub and just go through I mean they every shoe had to look per- I mean they were just going and then the fateful day comes this general comes into his own barracks and he says he was just petrified because if a drill sergeant can make your life miserable what would the commanding general do oh my gosh right and he said the general came up at one point right to him and he said he his mouth was so dry. And the general asked him some question. And he said he could barely get words out to answer it. And he said, this guy just put, in quote unquote, the fear of God into him. Well, he graduated boot camp and uh, did well after that. And eventually, uh, because of his um, accomplishments, achievements, and promotions or whatever, he was given a job uh, driving high commanding officers. And eventually ended up actually driving for this general. General Collins, his name was. And so he became the driver of this general that had put the fear into him. And so he he talks about being so nervous and having to drive this general. You know, he's trying to drive just right. Imagine having a police officer behind you, but your commanding general who could ruin your career and your life. 
in the seat behind you the whole time. And he said that, you know, at first it was just nerve-wracking. He said it was the worst thing ever. He said, but then over time, you know, as he's driving him, that he began to kind of get to know this general. You know, and he would overhear his conversations. And he began to, like, really see that this general was, like, a really brilliant uh, military tactician. He was very wise in dealing with people, ma- amazing leader and so on. And he said, man, I, I, I didn't just start. I kind of was still afraid of this guy. But I began to kind of really respect him and think, man, this guy... He's something else, you know. And so he began to really kind of revere him and, like, respect him and so on. And so his, his relationship with him began to change. And so instead of driving in fear of what rep- repercussions would come down on him or performing because he was afraid of judgment and, and the critical eye of the general, he began to drive out of honor and respect for this guy. And instead of fear of what would happen, it, it, turned, it began to shift towards a, I want to please this guy. Well, they, they never, he never faced combat or anything like that. But they very often would be in uh, uh, dangerous territory. And, and one time he was driving uh, General Collins um, in an area in Iraq. And an IED went off near their, their Jeep or whatever it was. They were driving a Humvee. And uh, the, the, the flipped this vehicle, and the general was thrown from the vehicle, and Butch was trapped inside, and this vehicle was on fire. And uh, though he was wounded and hurt, this general goes back into this burning vehicle, risking his own life, and pulls Butch McGregor out to safety. And... Later, he, uh, Butch was laying in the hospital and just couldn't believe what had happened. And, and the, the thing was, is he, he couldn't believe that this general would have risked his life. You know, he's important. He's running like a, you know, battalion or something. And he would risk all of that to save just one little driver. And, 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 and then, so instead of uh, uh, fearing this general... And then beyond just honoring and revering him, he began to love him because he would sacrifice himself for him. And this general would come and visit with him, even though he was really busy, he would come and visit, see how he was doing, and, and they began to become friends. And he got to know him, and they talked about family and these kind of things or whatever. Well, eventually, Butch went back to driving. And he would drive General Collins. But let me just tell you, they weren't chummy, chummy buddies. This was still the general. And so, though he'd become friends and they knew each other well, he still feared him. He still revered him, but loved him. And that little parable, that story, is a wonderful picture of the fear of God that Solomon is telling us. He's saying, God is scary. God is dangerous. God is not safe. And there's a day where good and bad, every one of us will face his judgment. Here's the thing. But he's good. He loves us. He loves us enough that God would send his own son 
to sacrifice himself, to pay the penalty that we might be friends with him. That's the gospel. But the problem is, my fellow preachers say, Jesus loves you. He doesn't care what you do. He doesn't care where you are. Jesus is your buddy. Jesus is your friend. Just, you know, do whatever. He's cool. And let me tell you, that is an error. Because the gospel starts with bad news. God is scary. You are created. You are fallen. You are broken. And you will face judgment before that God. That is the beginning of the good news. That is the harsh word Solomon needs us to hear. This is the goad. This is the, the, the harsh word we need to hear. And he says there's many books out there. There's, there's many people out there that will tell you something different. And you can tweet it. You can Instagram it later and say, oh, wasn't that a great message? That was awesome. And there was a lot of people there. And wasn't that a cool light show? You know, and all of that. Um, and let me tell you, you have missed it. So when we fear God this way, we are motivated into obedience out of awe-inspired love. It becomes totally different why we would want to please God. A friend, um, he's an Anglican pastor. He, he told a story of, like, different obedience. You know, every, we all go to the dentist, right? Anybody go to the dentist? And we know we're going to the dentist, we're going to get that, um, that lecture. What's the lecture? You want a lecture? You need to floss more. You, need, you know? And so what do we do before we go to the dentist? We, like, we start, we start flossing, you know, so we don't get the lecture. Well, he, he went to the dentist, of course, you know. But he had really been going at it because he didn't want to get the lecture or whatever. And so he was in there, whatever, and the, the, this um, lovely little lady was uh, his dental hygienist and was cleaning his teeth or whatever, and he was fully expecting the lecture. And instead, she said, wow, your teeth look really nice. Do you floss regularly? And he thought, well, well yeah, sure I do. <laughs> and that, he said that was lodged in his head, that compliment and that acknowledgement of him or whatever, this positive note kind of like lodged in him. And he said, for like the next year, he was like the most uh, religiously devoted flosser ever. And it was all because she had just said, man, that was great how you're doing. And we tend to be the other way, especially as parents, don't we? We're usually like, why aren't you doing it right? Why are you wrong? Well, you know, we're always down their case instead of, you know. And so, but there's a difference between the motivation of flossing because you're going to get a lecture or because you're going to get a cavities. Because none of us really do it for that reason. But he was doing it because he had, been, he had pleased someone, even someone he didn't know. And so when we fear God, and we know he is scary, and he is terrifying, he, we sh- he should strike dread in us when we know that he loves us dearly as our, as our father. The motivation for us drastically changes. So... Fear of God becomes a wonderful thing when we know His mercy and love. Fear of God becomes a wonderful thing when we know His mercy and love. So let me ask you a few questions. Do you fear God? Do you, do you have this fear? 
Um, and have you received his mercy and love? Have you received what his son Jesus came to do? His sacrifice for you. And if you haven't, let me just offer that to you. It is free. All you have to do is believe, trust, and receive it. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It is a gift. And then let me ask you this. As we just wrap up this book of Ecclesiastes, can you take a hard word? Are you the kind of person that can receive the, the hard edge, the wake-up calls that God is bringing your way? And there's going to be a lot of them. God's people need to be able to hear his word and, and, and not say what my kids say like a million times a day. Every time we tell them not to do something or to do something, what do they say? You're so mean. And I, I just started saying, yep, I am. You better still do it, you know. Uh, but this idea that because we're trying to correct them and guide them in what they need to be doing and for their good, we're mean. And instead, they should, you know, and as God's people, do we say that? When, when God brings correction and brings the hard word or the difficult circumstances that might teach us in our lives, do we say, you're a mean God? You don't love me. Instead, do we trust and fear him and know that he has our good in mind always? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you um, for... Uh, the harsh word